Again, welcome. And if you have your Bibles, please open them to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. Just a little bit of context. The word Deuteronomy, if those of you who don't know, it means second law given. And a lot of people, if they try to make a New Year's resolution to read through the entire Bible, they come to books like Deuteronomy or maybe Leviticus or Numbers, and they realize, wow, this is harder than I thought it was, and then they stop, right? And so it might seem odd to you that we would go to a passage like this, or a book like this, rather, on a day of celebration and rejoicing. And that this would be the text, this would be the place we go here. But let me read for you Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all of your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offering, your freewill offering, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The first thing I want to note about this text is the extent of the command. The command is simply this, you shall rejoice. And it may seem odd that God would command people to rejoice. Have you ever been on a road trip with your dad, maybe, and he looks back and he says, you're going to enjoy this. We're going to have a good time. We're going to be happy. God commands his people to rejoice. And first thing I want you to notice is the extent of the command. He says in verse 7, Therefore, you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your, all your household, in all that you undertake. This is kind of a summary passage or a summary command of all that the Lord commands his people. If you've read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you realize that God commands a lot of festivals. It's an integral part of the identity of Israel that they celebrate all of these festivals. There's the, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, the Passover Right. And all the you've got the Jubilee, you've got the Sabbath every week, you've got all of these festivals that they're commanded very specific ways to keep them. It makes up a significant portion of the law. But this is kind of summarizing it. He says, in everything that you do to undertake, you shall rejoice. So in everything we're supposed to to rejoice. There's kind of an indefinite reference in whatever you do. Doesn't matter if it's something specifically he's commanded us to do in a, in a festival or a feast or a Sabbath. In everything you do, rejoice. We have an example of rejoicing in our culture today, and it's what I would call fandom, right? So people will take a lot of time out of their schedules, they'll spend a lot of money, and they will go to places to be a part of what they enjoy in a team, 
in a restaurant, I'm, I've almost put together a road trip to go and find the nearest real Chick-fil-A, right? Because I'm a fan, right? I, I will drive hours and hours to get there because I love their food, I love their product. You can be a fan of things. It's, a fan is an abbreviation of fanatic, right? That is what God means. That's the flavor of what we should think of when he says rejoice. It's not just being happy. It's not just saying, yay. It's fanatic fandom. I heard someone say recently, I was asking him if he had, uh, was a member of a church anywhere, and he said, no, I've kind of gone a different route, but you can find God everywhere, right? While true, the problem with that is, if you're a fan, if you're a fanatic, if you rejoice in the Lord, you're going to do what's necessary and find your way to a place where we celebrate that. What true fan of any sports team wouldn't jump at the opportunity to go to a real game for free? You want to be there. You want to be with the people who agree with you, who celebrate whatever it is you're celebrating. So when God is commanding all of these feasts and festivals, this rejoicing, that's what we're supposed to see and think of. I also heard someone say, this was a long time ago, but it was a, a, he used to be a Christian songwriter. And he kind of distanced himself from his original band and he was criticizing Christian music and saying it all seems to be about the transcendent 1%. The transcendent 1% or that sliver of time where we gather and we worship and, and that's it. That that's all it's about. And so he started writing about other things and now I don't know if he's even following the Lord. My problem with that is this. The whole of life, all of it, is meant to be a process or a journey or a quest to have greater and deeper experiences of rejoicing in the Lord. We sing these songs that are, even if he's right, about this transcendent 1% of our lives so that we can coach our hearts into a proper position to rejoice. Because we're frail, we are very easily distracted. So that's the extent of the command. It's all of life. It's everything. Whatever you attempt to do, rejoice in the Lord. It's kind of like the psalmist says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Whatever day it is, you can say this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Believer, if you say that, if you commit to that, that is the most significant, the most powerful defiance against the world and the enemy. Regardless of what's going on, regardless of how hard it really is, and it is. If you say, today is the day that God has made, I will rejoice and be glad in it. Heaven and earth and hell take notice. I also want you to note the severity of the command kind of have to bring in all of Deuteronomy to really see this, but the covenant is essentially re-spoken or re-celebrated or recommitted to at the end of Deuteronomy or near the end in chapter 27. If you want to turn there, you can. Chapter 27 ends this way. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. 
and all the people shall say, Amen. Fair enough. Silence your phones. That's why we have the pew. There, we don't have pews, but I'm still going to call them pew Bibles because a chair Bible is awkward to say. So we have pew Bibles now. So silence your phones, turn them off, right? All right. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. Did you catch that? Cursed be anyone who fails to do what these commands have commanded. And a significant portion of these commands have been specifically to rejoice. Again, going back to that example of the father taking the kids on a trip. You're going to be happy. We're going to enjoy this. God essentially says the same thing. And it's in a much better, much better for us posture that he does so you will rejoice and cursed be everyone who doesn't fulfill or obey this command you'll be cut off from the people of God if you refuse to rejoice in the Lord and it seems odd so how is that command different here's why this is so important what you rejoice in defines you what you rejoice in defines you. And some of you may be asking those of you who are theologically astute, who have read your Bibles, you know your Bibles, you might ask, hey, rejoice in the Lord isn't one of the Ten Commandments, as far as I know. And the Pharisees, or the, the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? It says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Like, he doesn't say rejoice, so why are you harping on this idea of rejoice and saying it's so important? Why do we set aside a Sunday every quarter for doing nothing but essentially celebrating and rejoicing? It's actually there in both of them. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. If you know your Old Testament, you know that this idea of having something has marital overtones. And what God is saying in the first commandment, in the Ten Commandments, is that you will give your heart to no one else. You will not go after other gods. You will commit in your heart to no one else before me. You will take delight in me alone, is what he says. And also... In the greatest commandment, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your might. In everything, loving the Lord your God is a rejoicing in Him. The deepest yes of the soul you can muster. That is loving the Lord. Have you ever told someone, hey, I love you? Maybe after a fight. The meaning of that is true, I love you, but it's not to the highest degree. You're basically saying, I am exerting will and choice right now to love you. I've decided to set this love on you. And we need that kind of love. But it's not the ideal. The ideal is taking delight in that which you love. Rejoicing in the wife of your youth as Solomon says. This is how David said it in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, 
that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So that's the severity of the command. It's supposed to encompass all of life, and he does threaten curses if we are unwilling to, if we reject his commands to rejoice in him. Also note, again, you have to bring in all of the Bible to understand this, but there is the repeated nature of the command. The command to rejoice or to be happy in the Lord is actually the most repeated command in Scripture. Ten times in Deuteronomy alone, he commands his people to rejoice. He may say it different ways like celebrate, or take joy, but it's the most repeated command in Scripture. And when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, he says, blessed. If you want to, just go ahead and turn there. That's the same word for happy. Maybe this can inform the way you should understand the teachings of Jesus and how counter-cultural. He's not talking about blessed in some above-the-world state where you're just disconnected from reality and you're in some sanctified, holy form. He said, blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed, happy are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed, happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed, happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples fulfilled that perfectly when they were released from the Sanhedrin. After having been beaten, they rejoice because they had been counted worthy to suffer shame and pain for the sake of the name of Jesus. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The point, brothers and sisters, is to encourage yourself, to coach yourself, to ignore what you can say to yourself about how you ought to feel or how you deserve to feel because of certain things that have happened to you or things that other people have said to you and say, no, I will rejoice in the Lord. Now let's talk about the reason for the command. So two sets of reasons for this command to rejoice. You shall rejoice. The first set is the negative need for the command. We need this command to rejoice in the Lord because of our nature. We are forgetful. We forget what God has done. One of the pastors I used to listen to have referenced this before. He said the operative word of faith is remember. Remember what God has done. And because we are bound to time, 
We forget. We forget what God has done. We, each of us, I'm sure, those of us who know the Lord, have experienced times of great clarity and inspiration and a feeling of nearness to the Lord where we would be willing to go do anything for Him. And where it didn't matter how dark the situation was, we were rejoicing in the Lord. And then a few days later, a few weeks later, a month later, we forget. And those moments of clarity are no more. So we need this command, you shall rejoice, to remind us to think on what he has done. There are many in this room who are depressed, sad, melancholy or sanguine, angry, anxious, bitter, so this command, you shall rejoice, may be especially difficult for you, especially considering what might be going on in your life right now. But God gives this command in Deuteronomy multiple times, and he doesn't give any out. He doesn't say if you feel like it, if it's a good time for you, if things have gone well for you that year, then you can go to Jerusalem and rejoice with your brothers and sisters. You shall rejoice. So this command might be very hard for some. And that is our nature to look with time bound eyes to the things that have happened in our lives and not look heavenward and not remember in the past what he has done. The second negative need for this command is our situation. As I said, we're bound by time. We are so easily distracted. And also we live in a cursed world. Things are really bad. They are. And they were really bad for Israel at many times. But the command still stands. And it still stands because of what we owe to the Lord. This is the third negative reason. We owe God our lives. He has created us. He has redeemed us. He has provided a way of salvation. And He has blessed us beyond measure. So He deserves your rejoicing. But there are also positive reasons for the command. The first positive reason would be God's nature. He has made himself known to us. God, the creator of all things, has made himself known to us. We have his name. And not only that, not only has he made himself known to us, he has made it possible for us to know him. We rejoice, we're glad, we celebrate in such a way in spite of what's going on, because we have God. And so when people look at us and they try to see what the nature of our faith is, the first thing they should note is our joy in spite of what's going on because there is a God among us. 
We know the one true God. And that transcends and pushes back all of the difficult things and hard things and sad things and inclinations to despair that we have. We have God. And that changes everything. Surely there is a God among them. Surely these are the people of God. That is what the onlooking world should see and be stunned by our joy in God. The second positive reason for this command is our destiny. Brothers and sisters. Last week we talked at length about the kingdom of God. Do you live your life? Do you feel in ways that are appropriate for that destiny? I used to think and I used to be one who often it was either anger, frustration, bitterness. And I thought all of that was righteous because I was the righteous sufferer, right? It was like Elijah goes and runs all the way to Mount Sinai and says, I alone am left. They've killed all your prophets, Lord. Why don't you just kill me too? Depression and sorrow and sadness can take over. And Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Grief and sorrow are appropriate responses to things that happen. But the overtone, the dominant note of the Christian life is joy. It doesn't honor God to follow him with a gloomy heart. It looks towards heaven and the kingdom of God and says, yes, this is for me. This is what God has done for me. Also, we have been made sons, daughters of the Most High. Brothers and sisters. Do you know who you are? Paul says, do you not know that you will judge angels? Ruling with Christ, sitting on his throne with him. And for God to say of each of us, with you, I am well pleased. That transforms your life. If you really believe that, and that's what you're looking forward to, that Christ has done what is necessary to make that eventual destiny possible. It transforms the way you see the things that happen to you. Where Paul can say these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There's so much gravity, so much weight in that joy to be revealed in us. That if we didn't go through these hard times, if we didn't suffer the way that He allows into our lives, we wouldn't even be ready. He's expanding our hearts for joy that He plans to pour into our hearts. The last reason, positive, there are many more, but this, I've thought of these six. Because of what our greatest need is. This is why he gives us this command. We were, each of us, created in the image of God. And what that means, because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is that we were created to know him. It is our greatest need to know God. 
I don't have a problem with humanitarian efforts and trying to alleviate suffering in the world. But brothers and sisters, the greatest need for every human being is to know and rejoice in the Lord. That's what they were made for. And without that, there is a feeling and an eternity of emptiness. Severed from God's happiness, severed from the purpose for which you were created. It has been said that our problem is not that we want to be happy, but that we are too easily satisfied. We were created to be satisfied alone in the Lord. So he commands us, you shall rejoice in me. You shall celebrate me. You shall sanctify me in your heart. You'll be my fanatics. Because that's what I made you for. When it says he satisfies the longing soul. What he means there is that he satisfies the longing soul. It's not that he looks at longing souls and just kicks them the things that they need like water, food and shelter and human acceptance. He, he satisfies the longing soul. So the application, brothers and sisters, is that we rejoice. No matter what's happening, no matter how hard things are, that we share those burdens together and we gather here to exhort one another, to prod one another together, to stir one another up that we might rejoice and celebrate what God has done in making himself known to us. With that said, and that understanding of rejoicing and celebration, we put a lot of weight and significance into the Lord's Supper. Because this, more than almost anything else that we do, is a celebration of what God has done. And it reminds us, it's a very tangible, experiential way of pointing us back to what God has done and commending us to together celebrate this. So I want to read for you the text that we go to to understand this great supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 32. 1 Corinthians 11. beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want to say a few words about the Lord's Supper. So what are we doing in the Lord's Supper? What are we doing when we take this small piece of bread and this cup? First and foremost, it is a proclamation This is how Paul says it. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. Who are the proclaimers? You, you, brothers and sisters. So on the one hand, we here at North Star Baptist Church, we practice open communion, meaning we don't bar or fence the table against someone who is not a member of this church. You don't necessarily have to be a member in order to take the bread and the cup. At the same time, we exhort and plead with you to examine yourselves. If you live a life inconsistent with the confession of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, you have no business taking this cup and this bread. And I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm saying if you say of sin, this is okay, or I don't need to repent, that is inconsistent and incongruent with a life under the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, so you have no business taking it. And it is not good for you to do so. You drink and eat judgment onto yourself if you take this in an unworthy manner. But if Christ is your hope, if you rejoice in the Lord, in the midst of your struggle, you say, Jesus is my hope and trust. He's the only way I can get through this. He will hold me fast. Then this table is for you. So it's a proclamation. Those who confess Jesus as their hope and trust are the proclaimers. What is being proclaimed? For as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The gospel is proclaimed in these elements, in the bread and the wine. In wine or the cup, we have imaged the joy that is the new covenant. And in the bread, we have the idea of sustenance, that we need strength to endure to the end. In the shed blood of Jesus, symboled by the cup, we have the forgiveness of sins. In the bread, we see image the unity with the body of Christ. Why is this being proclaimed? Why do we proclaim his death? That's not a very celebratory thing. We call it Good Friday, but it's a very grim and sad picture. Jesus hanging on the cross, the Son of God, beaten, bruised, bleeding, suffocating, dying, pierced. It's not a very happy or cheery image. But in that, we have a promise. You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's implied, one, that he's not dead, and two, that he's coming again one day. So it is a rejoicing that we have. We've been forgiven of sins, and we know this for certain, that there is no more wrath for those who are in Christ by the fact that he walked out of the grave alive. So, just a few Warnings, do not take this bread or drink this cup unless you've really believed that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the one true God and is one day returning in power. And do not take this bread or drink this cup unless you are forgiven through faith in Jesus in his shed blood and broken body on your behalf. But if you do, this table is open for you. So what I'm going to do, I'll call the deacons here and they will pass out the elements. They will pass out both the bread and the cup. And then we will take them both together. Okay? 
So if we would begin that process. Jesus, I come to the 
of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Amen. So this next portion of the service is one that I've never done before personally, um, and so far as leading it, but we're doing a child dedication. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Mindy and Nathan have welcomed in through adoption uh, Luke and Caleb, and so we are dedicating, or as a family of faith, uh, welcoming them in at least as those who need to hear the gospel as well. So I just want to say a few things before we do this. This gives us an opportunity to remind ourselves of four truths. First, these young boys exist to glorify God. Their lives are sacred and have infinite value because they are created in the image of God. They're not second-class humans because of their age. God created them for His glory, just like the rest of us. And God desires and deserves their wholehearted worship. This is where they will find fullness of life and joy. Second, in spite of their young age and lack of full understanding of God's commands, we confess along with Scripture that they are sinners by nature and by choice. And as such, they are under God's wrath and in need of salvation, including the forgiveness of sins, the cleansing from unrighteousness, and the gift of the new heart. Third, we confess through this that Jesus alone is their Savior. 
It is only by faith in him that anyone, including Luke and Caleb, can be saved. For this reason, we don't baptize infants here at North Star Baptist Church. And we do not believe that a dedication service like this adds anything for merit for their salvation or inclines God in a gracious way towards them. However, we believe in the power of God's word and especially in the power of the gospel. Parents in particular, but also a church family, have an obligation, an obligation, brothers and sisters, to speak truth about God and about His Son, Jesus Christ, in love to all of our children. This is the most important way that we can help them gain salvation. That's the heart behind this dedication service. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy again. Deuteronomy 6. Hopefully this is something that's familiar to the majority of you. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. God summarizes all the commandments before he gets into a recounting of every one of the different commands and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind. And then he says, teach them or teach all of these commands to your children. So first and foremost, before we get to any of the specifics of God's command to God's people, it's supposed to be in our minds and in our hearts that it is our responsibility to pass these things on to the next generation. It is very important for all of us to take this as our responsibility. It's not just the job of the parents in the room to impart the faith once for all delivered to the saints, to their children. It's all of our responsibility. As we read in Psalm 145 at the beginning, one generation will commend your great works to one another. In a way, Hannah is an example for all of us. She prayed for God to give her a son. Samuel was born. And she gives him back to God. Not that you would literally give your children to the service of the church. We don't necessarily do that anymore. The temple era has ended. But in a spiritual sense, we are all to bring our children back to God. None of us owns our children. They're a gift. We are to steward them and bring them back to God. Reminding them day by day that Jesus is the one they need. The purpose of a child dedication service like this is to be found in the purpose of parents. Rightly understood, this ceremony is one of parental dedication. Nathan and Mindy are publicly pledging themselves to obey the command of the Apostle Paul when he says, Fathers, and it's also implied mothers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The ceremony is meaningless unless parents dedicate themselves to raising their children unto the Lord. And also for us, their church family, 
There will be promises for us to make at the end as well, as we seek to obey, to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So if I could have the roads come forward. The whole tribe. <laughs> it's okay. Nathan and Mindy, if it is your intention to present your children to the Lord, to commit yourselves to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, please answer we do to the following. Do you recognize Luke and Caleb as good and gracious gifts from God and give heartfelt thanks to God for his blessing? Do you dedicate yourself to raise Luke and Caleb unto the Lord who gave them to you? Do you on this day commit as their parents that you will bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? Do you on this day promise to give Luke and Caleb every means of God's grace afforded to you in provision, education, and in the community of faith? Do you on this day ask God's blessing upon their lives to lead, defend, and sanctify them throughout all their years? Congregation, if you would stand. If you're a member of this church, please stand. If you're not, you can stand with us. Will you... Members of this congregation, be faithful to your calling as members of the body of Christ so that these children and all the other children in our midst may grow up in the knowledge and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of children. We confess with the scripture that it is a very good gift from you when we receive one of these little ones. I pray that for Luke and Caleb, that they would sense our love, that they would sense your love for them through us, and that we would be faithful in proclaiming and speaking and teaching the gospel to them even at this young age, and that you would save them at a young age. We ask that you would guard them from unnecessary trial and tribulation, that you would use Nathan and Mindy to guard them from paths of self-destruction, we ask that you would inspire us and encourage us to give them back to you as Hannah did Samuel. We pray all this for your namesake. Amen.